episode 85 of the Summer of Miles podcast. We have one of our wish list guests here in Run Quarters today, a two-time Olympian, multiple-time national champion, coached the Women's Collegiate National Championship teams in 79 and 80, and he's here with us today. I know. Ladies and gentlemen, Sandy's here, of course, as always. Yeah, I have to be. Jack Bachelor. Welcome, Jack. Yeah, thank you. From, from Clayton to Raleigh, it is great to have you here. We've talked about having you on for a while. Um, a lot of us don't know we have Olympians among us, people that have grown big pumpkins, professors, a big list of things. But uh, what, what are you up to in 2022? Well, in 78, not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> just I've just recently started getting involved uh, visually or listening to track and field stuff for about the last year and a half. Of course, part of that was NC State's coming into such prominence again in cross country and in distance running. Another thing is some of us follow Gary Finelli or Mike Finelli, who posts, oh, yeah. you know, sometimes five times a week or so. And sometimes he, he has a real knack for history. I guess he's probably known as a historian, but you know, you might even see yourself or my old buddies Jeff Galloway and Frank Shore and so on. So it's been it's been fun to follow him again and. I get a pirated version of track and field news now, so that's, that's been helpful. <laughs> well, Pat, i got to jump in here. So, again, I grew up in Raleigh, started really kind of running competitively mm-hmm. with the junior striders, and at that point we practiced at the NC State Paul Dirt Track. And one of the groups that was out there when I was really young was Jack, and he was coaching some athletes. So I remember seeing him out there, and I was running with, at that point, Julie Shea. She was helping to mm-hmm. coach, and she would point over at Jack as he was, you know, tall, looming character and said, that's an Olympian over there. And so I'd always want to, you know, impress. And I was, I was like, man, this kind of Olympians among amongst us. So I, I've known uh, I've known Jack for a, a long time. It's been a while since I've seen him. But I will say, more recently, I was on a plane with you, Pat, heading out to Eugene, Oregon, for the U.S. Track and Field Nationals this year. And going out to Eugene for the first time, I thought I found it only fitting to read the Running with Pre book by Tom <laughs> Jordan. And lo and behold, what name popped up in that book again? Who was in one of the races that Steve Prefontaine ran, <clears throat> other than Jack Bachelor? So. When so I've always wanted to get him on the pod because I knew he was local, but when we had our uh, course summer of miles podcast with Mary Shea and she said he had she had his number, I said, "All right, that's that's our divine <laughs> that's our divine providence right there." Thanks, Mary. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna get up. So I say all that to say it is so good to Jack. Of course, have you here and. Would just love to kind of start at the beginning. I know you're from the D.C. area. What got you into the sport of running? Actually, it was a bit of a bet. I played basketball and not very well. I started as a senior. We were four and twelve. <laughs> and um, we'd sit around with friends. A couple of my friends were like number 14, 15 on the cross-country team, Alfred and Gene Smith. This is when I was a senior, by the way, and um, I was making fun of them. They challenged me to race around the block, so I get a feeling this wasn't something to make fun of. Um, I happened to beat them, so I decided to go out for cross-country. We had a fellow named Kermit Ambrose in Michigan. We had about 70 or so people out for cross-country. Wow. So Historically, we had been a powerhouse. He wanted to give me some strengthening. I was still about 6'6 and about 160 pounds, which is not exactly intimidating if you play center on the <laughs> So um, I went out for the first time trial, and um, we had like 50 people out for the first time trial. I finished fourth. So I thought 
maybe it's something I could do better than play basketball, and it turned out that that was the case. Sure. <clears throat> so that that was it. Okay. So in Michigan, the longest race you could run back in the, in this case, 62 was the mile. Um, cross country was two miles, and um, after cross country season, I think I placed something like 16th in the state. So it wasn't anything to be that would tend to encourage you as far as like running in college. <clears throat> um, so three months of cross country, then basketball, then two months of track. Um, I ended up being the 16th fastest, six, 17th fastest person before the state meet. So there are two heats, a slow heat and a fast heat. I was the fastest in the slow heat at 17th position. We had two guys, Dick Sharkey and Lou Scott, that ran 413 in the finals. Took a bunch of people with them. They died big time. I ended up with a 428 flat and ended up third in the state. Oh, wow. <laughs> After, depending on how you look at it, but that was, that was probably five and a half months of running from wow. scratch. So in a way, <clears throat> I wanted to continue running after that and got <clears throat> what we used to call grant and aids back in the day. So I went to Miami of Ohio on a modest grant and aid, which required me to work two jobs in addition to get like tuition and books. Holy sure. smokes. So almost went home. <laughs> I was late being accepted and had to sleep downstairs on bunk beds for the first two months. Was homesick. And uh, once you get to know your buddies in cross country, things got better. Definitely. By the time Christmas was done and you're back in school, things were fine. And right. You get eventually moved into a room because over that break, a fair amount of people flunk out. So there are a lot of openings. <laughs> And that was, a, that was the start of college. Oh, wow. So, you know, kind of walk us through uh, your time at Miami in terms of who was coaching, who you run with, and obviously just some of your performances that obviously started to propel you to the next level of, of, of the sport. Yeah. So we probably ran 35 or 40 miles a week. Um, That's it. Once a day. Had two coaches that really weren't very good. One was a smooth-talking fella. Um, my brother ran distance at Miami. He came down... Uh, after I did, and the coach would always promise shoes and stuff, but would seldom deliver. And we had another coach that was kind of a disciplinarian that I didn't care for, but when I was a freshman, there was a fellow named John Bork who won the, won the national championship at, uh, at the AU meet, 148 half miler in 60, 62, 63 was, was fast, right? And he was we got to know him, and he was one reason why I kind of, kind of stuck it out in college. Um, couldn't run as freshman. Sophomore year, I started moving up on the team. I'd say late in my sophomore year. Yeah, late in my sophomore year, I was probably our best distance runner. Last two years, we had a fellow named Bob Shul that came back to oh, Miami. Yeah. He had won the gold medal in Tokyo, yeah. as, as you probably know. Definitely. Um, he was very serious. We didn't get to know him. He just ran in a couple. He was eligible when he came back. He might have run in like three or four meets, ran some good times, even wanted to have his records retired, if you can believe that. And, uh, <laughs> what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> and we had, we had a sign where my roommate had a sign up during the Tokyo Olympics. We could somehow catch that at like three in the morning. Yeah. And he had this huge banner that said, Beat Bob Shule. <laughs> <laughs> So we didn't really know about, you know, looking back on it, what, what a terrible mistake. But we did see, he would run um, intervals twice a day, uh -huh. um, real short. He always wore a 
handkerchief around his nose and mouth. It was, I wouldn't say he was a, a germaphobe, but he was just very careful about everything he did. And um, Tom Traveler. I was going to say, the pandemic would not have been. <clears throat> but, but for us, it, really the only chance in a small college like Miami, we had about 9,000 students, mm -hmm. was to run an event you could get into. In this case, Javelin was one that was a little soft in the day. Steeplechase was another, so I got to run as a sophomore, junior, and senior in steeplechase, placing seventh, and then fifth, and then second in the NCAA. Um, second in the NCAA at 35, 40 miles a week was enough to kind of wonder if you couldn't run faster in a different circumstance. So where, where did you go from there? I know we talked, you ran the 64 Olympic trials in the steeplechase. And uh, is that when you went to Florida after that? Right, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So um, fellow Jimmy Connors, head track coach, was starting a, a track club for people that had graduated but would either work or continue their graduate education. And so he had facilities where he could shower and get a towel and stuff. Um, he was a great uh, delegator, so we were kind of on our own. Um, but it was a... Gainesville is a pretty good situation in that um, in graduate school, and in my case in entomology, it wasn't terribly difficult, but with budgeting time you could, you could both run and be, be a graduate student at, at the same time. Um, now, who, now who was down there with you? Um, because we also know that you also were the logo designer, right? Right. For the Florida Track Club. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I just want to hear about kind of that inception. I mean, obviously, the coach down there, Jimmy Carnes, you said, yeah. uh, he kind of got it going, but was it just kind of a guys kind of popped in from all over? How did y'all kind of start to yeah. so, get so the organized? First, for the first couple of years, no one was down there, you know, except for the Florida track, I mean, the Florida, University of Florida sure. um, runners. Um, so the orange thing happened in 1970. I had two previous shirts before that, just to be distinct from the University of Florida runner. Right. It was just a, you might call it a wife beater. Yeah. You know, you know, white, <laughs> right. A white shirt with press-on letters. Yeah. That <laughs> said right, right. FTC on it. And then a, a fancier thing that was but blue nylon with the University of Florida, the orange letters going across. It just said Florida, TC. And it was 1970. Um, when I designed the orange logo to be a little a little bit nicer and drew that up, sent it to John Bork. Um, if you go way way back, some people might remember Blue Ribbon Sports. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. very early Tiger at the time. Mm -hmm. um, he had them printed up, sent us ten, and we ran with those for about a year and a half. Cool. Yeah. Now, who was with it? I mean, name some of the guys that you were training with. So, it's heyday. Yeah, how did you, where did you go from yeah, 35 so, miles a week to 180 miles a week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was um, at Florida, the first year I ran, that was in the fall of 66, I ran, I decided I was going to run twice a day. So for that first nine months or so, I ran three miles every morning, thinking that was, that was a big step up. And in that first year, I didn't see one other person running in the morning. It just... We're in the South, it was an earlier time. and Then um, I gradually started increasing my miles and by the time I made the high altitude training in 68, so this is before the guys start coming. Right, right. Um, 
By the time I was at high altitude training, I was running 85 miles a week. After that two and a half to three months, I was running um, 115 miles a week. So the increase was, was fairly sudden. Um, the high altitude training was basically the top 14 or 15 people in each event mm -hmm. that qualified and were chosen to go up for high altitude trainings. So they have the final Olympic trials at altitude, just like Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And we're training a place called Echo Summit that was carved out of a mountain. I'm sure you've seen pictures with the Douglas fir on the inside yes, of the track. Yeah. <clears throat> so by the end of this, by the end of that time, coming up to the final Olympic trials, it seemed to me like people were making choices. You keep doing what you're doing. You're at altitude; it's more difficult, so you cut back quite a bit, keep rested, and so on. Or you pick things up. In my case, there is nothing to lose, so I picked it up a lot. And this would have been 68, right? Yeah. 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 And during the summer of 68, we had one meet in Eugene, Oregon. Ran the first 10,000 meters in my life. Qualified. You know, you had to have Olympic qualifying yeah. time, just like you do now. <clears throat> Earlier, I think at Mount Sac, um, I ran 5,000 meters. Qualifying time was 13.50. I ran... 1348.6, so I was qualified in 5,000 meters. So you probably know, in Olympic teams, if you have one person in the event, they can run anything, right? Yeah. But if you want more than that, they all have to qualify for the, get a qualifying time. <clears throat> so by the time the 5K finals was coming around, um, we had run a couple races at altitude. One of the races, about two and a half weeks before the finals, um, ran a 5K against a lot of the people that were going to be in the finals, ended up in a way winning that by about 50 yards, but we were a lap short. Associated <laughs> Press didn't know that. <laughs> so their comments, so people thought, b before it could be corrected, it was on AP wires and stuff, that I had broken the American record at altitude. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so their comments, one was Ron Clark, this is going to rewrite what we know about altitude and stuff. Right, right. <laughs> and then, of course, it didn't take long for you know corrections to be. But the the good part of that was I was running against some of my competitors. So yeah. by the time the five thousand finals came around, <clears throat> I thought maybe there were five of us that had a chance. So um, top three go, and so in a way, if you're far and away the best. It's probably a little, maybe a little less pressure. If you're not going to make it, there's probably not a lot of pressure. But if you think you're one of the three that might make it, so that was a little scary. We were realizing maybe for the first time you had a chance. Yeah. <clears throat> then in the finals, we had a real windy day. Um, Bob Day from UCLA went out real fast. I caught him with about a 300 to go. Um, he said, why don't we just tie? I said fine with me because pretty good gap to Lou Scott was probably the next one with Jerry Lindgren not far behind him yeah so we just went pretty easily around to the finish we get close to the finish he goes like this and leans at the tape oh, <laughs> boom. and there's a track and field news picture I'm patting him on the butt <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd put my finger somewhere else <laughs> so anyway so he was he was declared the winner we both had the same time of course we were both on our way to Mexico City yeah Another interesting, at least the thing that I found interesting, there's a fellow named Tracy Smith who won the 10,000. He was probably maybe the best dis, distance runner of his time, or the best American distance runner at that time. And so we ended up rooming together in Mexico City. 
but he trained under Igloy. Yes. So um, I asked him, what's the hardest workout you've ever done? So in Denver, where we were processed before Mexico City, we ran the hardest workout, hardest slash longest workout they had ever done. So with warm-up, we did sets of 600s and 200s. And like I ended up doing for the rest of my running career, we ran them on grass with sets with different efforts. So we had fair, good, and hard. That's what I did with Tracy. So that workout ended up being 22 and a half miles good. Wow. in Denver. And then another day we ran the second hardest workout. That was a higher quality thing. I think that was like 18 miles. So, you know, Tracy obviously had a pretty good background, but it was fun seeing what his hardest igloo workouts were. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So what was Mexico? Uh, how did you, I don't know if I, how did you end up running in Mexico City? So I'd say it was both good and unfortunate. Um, they had four heats. And I think there were 16 people in the final then. In my heat, they took the top five, as well as the other heats. I finished fourth in my heat, quite a ways ahead of the film went Spiridov, a Russian, who ended up being seventh in the finals. The guy who was fourth in the finals, Mejia from Mexico, I ended up running against in a 10K in Miami for our national championship, which lets some foreigners run. Um, he was fourth in the Olympics. I ended up beating him with a 55-2 last quarter, which for me was um, was fast. But after making the finals the following day, I got, I guess, a pretty rough case of uh, amoebic dysentery or Montezuma's revenge. And I was 160 pounds, 162 pounds, a little bit over 6'6 then, and um, I lost eight pounds. You can believe that when you're almost a walking skeleton. Yeah. Of course, walking skeletons can be pretty successful. This. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Dawes, beautiful. That's right. right. <laughs> you know what uh, Parker said. And, and then another interesting thing was I watched the 5K finals sat next to Peyton Jordan, who was a coach. He had walked down to say, "I hope you're doing okay" and stuff. So I sat next to him. 200 meter um, award ceremony. So we were probably 80 feet from that with John Carlos and Tommy Smith and the, yeah. <clears throat> the black glove thing. Well, there's an announcer by the name of Harold, Howard Cosell. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Kind of a jerk, but he was probably Muhammad Ali's, you know, he, he's probably known for interviewing Muhammad Ali and so on. He came up to the stands to Peyton Jordan and said, what do you think about this? Peyton said, I, you know, I don't know. I don't have any comment. He stuck the microphone in my head. Well, as an athlete, what do you think about this? I didn't want to say anything, so he swore at both of us and took his microphone, and I'm sure he had a lot of people interviewed, because that was probably one of the biggest news stories of, yeah. the, of the Olympics. Yeah. So that was, that was the end of my Olympics, but with um, amoebic dysentery, when I uh, went back to Florida, I had it a couple more times after that, Ooh. so it, it kind of hang on, but, but nothing like that. It was right. Just, um, well, clearly, you going back to Gainesville after making the Olympics, I mean, you brought back some notoriety of that, you know, the performance and obviously making the Olympics. Is that kind of, did you start recruiting guys down there? No, it was kind of, I don't know whether organic is the right word. So John Parker was running with us. A fellow named Jerry Slavin that you've never heard of was running with us. And so we started talking to people. Barry Brown was one. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Galley was a graduate student at the University of Florida. Florida State had a runner by the name of Ken Meisner. Yeah. 
we started talking to Frank Shorter, uh, and that performed the nucleus of a pretty hefty cross-country team. Right. Um, I'm trying to think. In um, 1969 was kind of was my best year, so it was 1970 where we started getting, including Frank. So Frank came down. He wasn't Frank Shorter yet. Now he had won the NCAA six mile championship, so he wasn't a slouch anyway. But he went from low mileage to 140 miles a week over a period of about five months. How, how did y'all do that and not get injured? Well, so in so in my case. It, it, so it was pretty gradual when you consider college and then the, a pretty big push at altitude mm -hmm. and then after that building up over a period of time so <clears throat> but we still had we still had rest days but after a while a rest day was a 20 mile day it was just relaxed enough so that it provided enough recovery which is <laughs> which is all we wanted you know if, if it took a five mile day to do that fine if it took a 20 mile day were to you do running that, on trails fine. or what what kind of stuff were you running on Almost always off the track. Okay. Um, we had three big grassy fields at the University of Florida. Okay. So we're running typically different sets of different things, and we get on the track once in a while, more so in track, but you know, there, there's a lot to cross country and then fall and then the spring where you're, you're really pointing toward the, toward the national AU meet at the time. So it was mostly on these grassy things. We're marked for 400s and 600s and three quarters and miles and so on. And then. If we'd run repeat miles, we'd run those on a well-marked cross-country course. We'd run the first mile, so you, you, so, so we knew. It. You know, otherwise, running multiple laps around the grassy field would get, would get kind of old. Yeah. So then, you know, at what point? I know. Again, I read about this in Running with Pre. Did you ever, apart from racing, did you ever speak and or talk or were you friendly with C. Prefontaine at all? No. You know, he's. Um, I think he mellowed some because Frank Schurter became really good friends with him. Mm -hmm. um, um, we thought he was kind of an arrogant ass yeah. for the most part. <laughs> you wouldn't be the only person to say and, that. John, yeah. and jo John Parker called him the world's fastest, or the, yeah, the world's fastest hot dog. <laughs> so we didn't get, now, <laughs> I mean, part of that was he was really good, but um, I started, I raced pre a couple times when I was probably at my top and he was on his way up. So I'm, Two wins and no losses against Steve Prefontaine. Let that be known. <laughs> For the record. For the record. I, I don't know if there's I don't know if other people can say that. <laughs> Maybe some Europeans, right? Did you beat him in a 10,000, right? Or would they both say that? against Pre in the... He had run the NCAA. In all fairness, he had cut his foot on a bottle. Um, but still won the NCAA. Oh, yeah. So that's in those movies. So I don't know whether his griping about the... AU was a real concern, or, or whether it was just you know he he lost Frank Frank that was that was a national championships in '70 and Frank won the 5,000. I don't I don't even remember my place. I think it was third or fourth, but it was one ahead of Prefontaine. And then in the 10K, I think that was our first big race where we intentionally tied. In the, it was probably a six mile back then, but you know we to make it clear, you know we held hands when we finished, so there wouldn't be any. You know, any doubt, at least that that was our intention. Although right. we did that at the Drake Relays once, they let us another time, they separated us. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So then I guess between there and the Olympic buildup of uh, 72, I mean, you guys, I mean, you, and probably one of, the, one of the most prolific running groups right there, you know, 
uh, for obviously for de- you know decades, maybe leading up to Bowerman or whatnot these days. But I mean, were y'all just hammering each other into the ground, or was there friendly camaraderie? Oh no, no, it, it was hundred percent friendly, hundred percent of the time. Okay. Yeah, we didn't have any. Now I coached women. I co- when I was at NC State after my involvement with the with the women at NC State, I coached anyone who wanted to show up <laughs> and. With some of the women, there was our share of cat fights about things, you know, about <laughs> somebody was always leaving or someone was going fast on the warm-up to tire the others out or the fast people didn't want to take a, they wanted to take an easy recovery. Some of the more distance-oriented women would want to speed up the recovery. So, yeah, so, and so that was not a huge ongoing problem, but with the Florida group, um, we were good friends. Like Jeff Galloway, I didn't make the team in 72 in the 10K. I was a disqualified fourth, so I had to make it the marathon or go home. And Jeff Galloway ran with me the whole way. Yeah, I remember reading that, that, you know, 72 obviously was the year Shorter ended up winning the gold, but uh, yeah. um, Kenny Moore was, was second. And yeah. then Galloway paced you to third and kind of mm-hmm. let you get there because he was already on the team in the 10K. What was that race like, the trials that year? It was, um, in, in, in my case, I had a really tough time. I won my heat in the 10K. Finals were just awful. I think it was in the, I think Track and Field News had said it was in like the mid-90s. And the marathon and the 10K were, the marathon was held at the track trials, right? Right. And yeah. so 10K was early in the track. The right. marathon was the last day. <clears throat> and um, I'd say the race was somewhat difficult because of the heat. Um, but then again, um, the place behind us, which would be f- fifth place, was two minutes behind us. So it wasn't as though we were running together and just eking out a right, right a win. And I've heard Jeff Galloway's account of it, saying that he was concerned because I hadn't done a 14-mile run in the last month. <laughs> and, I had, and I had, I had in the last month. We were in Oslo, and I, we had Jeff and Frank and I had run 22 and a half miles. As anyone who runs marathons, you have to run a long race every so often. Yeah. You might have a foot problem or your nipples might bleed. Just all these little things where you might get like rubbing that yeah. becomes a huge issue during Gotta the race. Got to protect the nipples. Yeah. <laughs> it's not something that's talked about much, but there are a lot of things that can show up after Definitely. 20 miles. Um, so it was kind of neat to see Florida Track Club place first. Um, and second in the disqualified fourth, and then the marathon tie for first, second and third, you know, with our orange logo. So that was. What, what do you mean by disqualified fourth? What happened so there? So John Anderson, whose father was the mayor of Eugene, caught me with about 60 yards to go and passed me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like we all were, we're trying as hard as I can. I was wobbling, bumped into him. It didn't impede his progress. So the. the that decision was a little bit controversial and talked about, but that decision was also final. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we couldn't do any switching around, like if Frank hadn't wanted to run the 10,000 meters, my right. fourth might have worked, because we had talked about that before the thing. I'm, obviously, I'm glad he did, because he set two American records in, in Munich before winning the marathon. <clears throat> you know, the first time anybody had run in 28 minutes, it was Frank twice. So, you know, and then running the marathon. Talk about Munich. Obviously, yeah. everybody knows kind of the, the hostage situation that happened there. Yeah. Where did your race kind of fall in line with that, and where, where was your head at, like, with, with everything going on? Well, at the, at the beginning, it was a huge shock. Um, 
our American compound was almost directly across and maybe five degrees over from the Israeli compound. Um, this happened at three or four in the morning. And um, so it was uh, an ongoing thing during the day till they went to that, that nearby Army base airport, you know, that night with all the, all the subsequent deaths that occurred. There was talk about the end of the Olympics, mm -hmm. which would have been a big deal if you had your race coming up. I mean, from a, a personal, maybe somewhat. Anyway, um, it was certainly a big deal. But I think we had worked hard enough, and the the, the, the answer that they arrived at that if they caught the Olympics, that would might be the best thing that the terrorists could possibly hope for. Right. 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 Cancel the whole thing. So. We had a, a like a, a day of mourning and a big uh, a big service in the Olympic Stadium and I think I think the distance runners did run that much and maybe other events too um, could kind of um, just put that kind of aside because mm -hmm. I, I to be honest I don't think it impacted the race much one way or the now Ron Hill who was very deliberate day by day exactly I I understand. Um, he said after his, his place, which I can't remember, maybe it was seventh or eighth or so, but he was one of the contenders along with the film of Derek Clayton, I think, mm -hmm. you know, along with Frank. Um, so again, I don't think it affected my race. It did with a, uh, with a few people. In Ron's case, I don't think it was mourning as much as I understood. He had this very deliberate thing that he had to change by a day, and he attributed that to his place. Right, right. You know, who knows? <laughs> but the uh, the Olympic race, I think, was in the low 80s, so that was not a picnic either. Right. Um, my case, um, at one point, I think with about 18 miles ago, I had passed Kenny Moore, who ended up fourth, and I had a a chest cold, and was hacking up, you know, tan and you know stuff. So I I carried a handkerchief with me. A lot of people when they're running a marathon, you know, if they have to blow their, their nose, they're just going to do it right. But I didn't want to, with our white uniforms, ugh. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a high art supinating runner. So I, I don't exactly skid, but I definitely land on my toes. And within probably two weeks of finishing the marathon, I lost 10 of my 11 toenails. Ugh. So ugh. That, that was, so I, I, we had a shoe called a Tiger Bori back then. It was a spike-lasted, really light thing with little teeny suction can, suction cup-like things on it. <clears throat> and I, we always tied our shoes pretty tight. I tied mine too tight. When my feet swelled up a little bit, my shoes didn't. So the morning after my race, um, my quads and my calf was so sore I had to take my luggage and I had to scoot down on my butt and my heels down the stairs because I couldn't walk very well. <laughs> and then Frank and Kenny went out on an easy eight mile run in the morning and I was thinking, oh, oh. Like and if you've seen Frank Shorter run or films of he is one he's very light on his feet. Yeah. You know, and, and at five ten he's light anyway. Yeah. You know, and when you win a gold medal, like <clears throat> things seem to work a little yeah. better too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean here Kenny Moore, there's descriptions of him taking the tape off his feet and a lot of skin and blood came along oh. with that. So he had a he had a rough time late in the race and here Moldy beats him by fifteen seconds or something, so he 
and he was certainly in the hunt for a bronze medal. <clears throat> well, Kenny uh, passed away earlier this year. What can yeah. you say about your relationship with him? Um, always had a good relationship with Kenny. Um, you probably know he's a great, great sports author. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you ever come back to Sports Illustrated Archives, you can probably find about 20. There's tons of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really good, it, it, as you know. And so uh, I got to know him in 64 when we both tried out for the Olympic team in the steeplechase. And out of, I think we had, in the Randalls Island, they had two, two trials to choose the team. Um, I ran something like 917, and Kenny ran something like 919, so as bad as I ran, he was right there with me. So we commiserated a little bit and started, started corresponding. And then I was going to see him again at the, you know, all the NCAA championship meets. And he ran the steeplechase and I ran the steeplechase. So we became good friends. The difficult thing for me was when he would write a letter, and I wish I had kept him, it was like, you were getting a letter from John Steinbeck or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I would write him back with this, what I regard as kind of fumbling stuff. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's funny to hear, I mean, obviously we, you know, we would, that we would text, correspondence looked like a text oh, back yeah, and yeah. forth. <laughs> Maybe yeah. social, some sort of form of social media, but as you, you know, you wrote letters, that's how you communicated yeah. with. <laughs> and it probably would have been more frequent with a lot of deals, right? You're, you're mailing a letter and putting it in an envelope yeah. in the mailbox. And, Got to wait, <laughs> yeah. snail mail as it were. So Jack, you obviously, have, I mean, you, your range is so impressive. I mean, you've run 150 point in the eight, and you've run all the way up to 217 in the marathon. So incredible range with some very fast times in between. Looking back, before I would definitely want to talk to some about your coaching career, looking back on racing or PRs, what kind of stands out as something you're just really, really proud of with kind of your running career? I would say cross country was probably the thing I enjoyed the most. Okay. And winning that, um, um, when I did in 69, it was in the snow, and there's some comments about the guys from Florida, including me, having uh -huh. a hard time in the snow. As it turned out, I lived about six miles away from Cranbrook, where it was held, uh -huh. near Birmingham, Bloomfield Hills in Michigan, mm. and I had trained on that area every summer. So I was familiar with the area. So in a way, you're coming from Florida, but we had four inches of snow, and it was probably 38 or 40 degrees, so for running, you know, it was, it was good. Yeah. Um, one embarrassing thing for the, so Florida had a couple guys that came up, um, and they, um, outside of John Parker, who ran for Florida, um, they ran flats. And Ooh. we had some steep, slow, snowy stuff that had become slushy with the sun, and some of the Florida guys, like, fell, yeah. you know, five or eight times, <laughs> you know, and ended up running like a minute, I mean, yeah, a minute and a half worse than they probably uh -huh. otherwise. But. Yeah. Well, that, that's something I want to talk about real quick, too, is you've been fictionalized in John Parker's Once a Runner as the coach, Bruce Denton. Right. How has that followed you around for your life? It hasn't because most people don't have, haven't put two and two together. <laughs> and, and Bruce Denton, maybe he had come back from winning a gold medal or something. He was a lot better than I would, and then... Um, Clinton Cassidy, the you yeah. know, the hero of the yeah. book, was a lot better than John was too. You know, <laughs> he, was, he was a marler that was gonna, you know, I forget, maybe I don't know when winning Olympic gold in a later book, but um, so it, it was an enjoyable read. For one thing, John's a good writer. Oh yeah, although great. his second book, I, uh, 
I didn't get. But the third book I thought was was good. Yeah. He had a description of the marathon that made me think he'd never run a marathon, but he he had a couple times because it went off in this I don't know this kind of otherworldly dreamlike trance-like thing, and uh -huh. this guy running the race would kind of come in and out of it, and yeah. so on. But but was it running in the rain? His third, his third one. Race in the rain was the one, the third one that the, was like the. He was in Florida, and there was this old right. guy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I enjoyed that again. But what I, I thought some of his writing, um, when Jeff Galloway had his run walk run thing, of course, which is wildly successful. John wrote an article, I think, for Runner's World, that, where he kept going further. It was it was a it was a run, eat, walk, and then a walk, sleep. You know, he had this right, right. progression of, of things, and it was pretty funny. But then again, you know, Jeff has thousands of followers. I don't know whether you follow him on Instagram and look at some oh, yeah. of his. So in a way, it's kind of. And it, like the guy that you ran with, I mean, I'm thinking like, I mean, obviously Frank Shorter. I mean, a lot of these guys. I mean, Jeff Galloway. You, I mean, I, I was for the longest time a, a subscriber to Runner's World, so he he had a column every every. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, of course Parker with this book too. The guys that you ran with, I mean, have impact. And of course, Frank Shorter's been kind of like an, a, an ambassador at large for a very long time. In yeah. fact, I have a picture the first time I met him. Which is ironic because I'm going there this weekend. Was at the Virginia Ten Miler when I went to oh, run yeah. as a fourth grader. He mm -hmm. was like an ambassador there, mm -hmm. um, and yeah. so yeah, Lynch, I mean Lynchburg. in Lynchburg, of course. And so you know, all these guys have just stayed, you know, have done impressive things with the sport. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, in, in again to Carthage, the second book, the the marathon book, there is uh, some Raleigh talk, and it does kind of mention you as Bruce coaching the Shays, and whenever he comes through Raleigh, you go out, you would go out to eat, and one of the scenes. He talks about meeting you at a local Mexican restaurant. It's yeah. been highly debated what that Mexican restaurant is and if it's real or fiction. It was it was real, um, and and John knows enough conversational Spanish that he the the the, the, the one race waitress was thrilled because there's a guy ordering and asking her how she's doing in Spanish and stuff. <laughs> then in Clayton doesn't happen very much, right? So, so it's, a, it's a Mexican restaurant I mean, place. Maybe in, maybe in White County, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what was the name of this restaurant? You know, I my wife and I were trying to think of it. It's gone out, it's been out of business for over a decade now. Okay, okay. Where was it located? Do you remember like Yeah, the... it, it was on 70th. So there's a, a pizza place on 70 called Venero's. Okay. Um, and it was uh, before that. My, matter of fact, my wife knew exactly where it was. Um, but it was off 70 in an old, what, which is in now a pizza spot called Venero's, you think? Well, no, it's beside there. there. I, I think it's kind of near Clayton High it, School. It's right near yeah. there. It's probably five, maybe a quarter of a mile or less from Venero's. Yeah. If you're going through Clayton, Venero's would be the second stop on the way out toward Goldsboro. Yeah. <clears throat> gotcha. There well, walk, walk us through you know, coming up to Raleigh and then coaching. You know, that kind of transition you made from, from running and then coaching and what brought you up here. And then obviously we'll, we'll hop into some of the athletes you coached here. Yeah, after the 72 Olympics, you said you've been in Raleigh since 72. Was that like a, you coming here for um, master's or doctorate program? Yeah, so I had my PhD. I was coming here on something called a postdoc. Okay. So I did kind of a speciation ecology like thing, which was a lot of fun and interesting, but zero as far as jobs go. I applied to a couple small colleges. One was in Medford, Oregon for a teaching position. I got a boy, we really appreciated your resume, but we had over 300 applicants wow. for the position. So um, um, when I was in Munich, um, 
I was looking at possibilities for a postdoc or a faculty position, and I saw one guy had advertised, um, and ended up being good friends with him, uh, J.R. Bradley in the entomology department here, which was highly regarded entomology department. They had a postdoc opening, and that was um, to study the ecology and biology of North Carolina populations of the bull weevil. Turned out there's a huge bull weevil problem, uh, well, it was a problem, a huge program that started in 78 that swept through the whole country that was a, a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar deal. Wow. So anyway, I talked to, he hunts a lot. I returned the call, I talked to his wife, and, and she was encouraging, so I came down here to start a postdoc under this guy. Then a second um, postdoc, another guy, so between 70, fall of 72 and early 76, I was on a postdoc, then a faculty position opened up that I was qualified for, got that. And then all during that time, I had a couple more years of running in me, in me kind of, in 72. I think I finished second in the National Cross Country Championship in the fall of 72. Frank had won the previous three years and he ran in the Sao Paulo, that midnight San Silvestre run in Brazil. It, was, it used to be a really big deal. Uh -huh. So I got to run in that. Um, they start that New Year's Eve, so you get a lot of firecrackers thrown at you and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. It's an I idea. somehow scraped through a um, 839 two-mile in the Astrodome. Um, I didn't care for indoor running, even though I did my share, you know, being kind of tall and gawky, but that was five laps to the mile. It's like a bad news bear situation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah bank, bank track. So um, when I got here, um, in 72, families put up people in Eugene during the Olympic trials, mm -hmm. and I was put up with a family with Jeff Galloway and this Jim Wilkins from NC State. Yeah. So we all stayed with this Hollisters, this family, and of course, I got to know Jim pretty well, and he and Tommy Burleson talked me into coming down to NC State. Burleson's, and that's another story, but Jim and I became friends, and I ended up hiring him as a technician when I became a faculty member. <clears throat> Part of that understanding was while he was a technician, he got his master's degree in, in education. He was going to be a teacher. I think Jim ended up being an administrator, but you know, again, as, as we talked about before, you know, Jim had the disadvantage of being a four-minute miler with three people that were faster in the ACC. You know, Tony Waldrop, I think, had some kind of an incredible record of seven or eight sub-four-minute miles in a row at one point. Yeah. Right? yeah, he held the indoor mile record until very recently. Yeah, and then Bob Wheeler made the Olympic team. Yeah. And then, um, so I had Jim run longer. So Jim's best... Two mile was like 9.06. So Jim came over every morning through the fall and ran like uh, six miles with me at the time. And the good news was that Jim improved his time indoors from 9.06 to 8.36. Wow. The bad news was there's a fellow named Steve Wheeler that edged him out at the tape running about two tenths of a second faster. So it was kind of neat to see uh, Jim improve like that. We're familiar with Steve Wheeler because he was the last guy to break four minutes in the mile before we started our race, and that was 1974. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So, wow, he stayed pretty fit. Yeah. Well, I, I, well, of course, he's at 74. Yeah, it, it, nobody <laughs> did it in Raleigh for 40 years. Yeah, it was just so, for, in Raleigh. Yeah, no one had, no one had heard of him much before that. It's one of those things where he shows up at the yeah. ACC championships and runs 
I think it was 836. Yeah, people knew Bob, but but not Steve, and he had a pretty lasting impression. Yeah. Yeah. So when you came up here to NC State, obviously, did, was there did you know you wanted to get into coaching as well, or did that how did you kind of no, fall into that? No, that was always kind of a hobby. Um, so I, uh, Jim Wascott was really easy to get to know, and I was running anyway, and so I was running with the NC State people, and it was hopefully it was helpful for them because I was a little bit faster than them, so maybe that pushed them on distance runs and interval workouts and. Um, I think after two years, Jim put me on a payroll, but um, as a postdoc, I couldn't accept any money. So my wife, or my uh, my ex-wife, was paid like four thousand dollars a year out of their travel funds. So you know, I was paid a little bit, which back then helped. Um, and the guys, they never won an ACC championship, but I'd like to think that they. They ran pretty close to what they were capable of doing, which mm -hmm. was good. And and people like Mantini and Kevin Brower, there's a Tony Bateman back in the day. They were all, you know, pretty good. Um, I, so Kevin Brower and um, Mantini uh, and I get together for lunch, maybe. Uh, you know, uh, once or twice a year. So where, where were you all running around this town yeah. in Raleigh? So one, one good thing that's no longer available is we had a loop that went out and ran through the Dorothea Dix property, but there was a lot of it that was farmed back in there. So that was about an eight-mile loop that oh, ran, wow. ran quite a bit. And it's developed. I don't think you can run it now, but um, outside the track were grassy fields, and before all the fences and the road going down now and stuff, you could run at 800 around there, so that was pretty good. You had to run up over this little hill and then onto the track, and then around by the stone wall that goes up. And yeah. Finish, you know, by the creek. There's a bridge that goes over it, and a cross country course went through the woods too. So we had some loops around there you could run on. So it was it was pretty decent. Occasionally yeah. we'd go out to Dorothea Dix. So they probably still do that. Yeah. Where you could run indefinitely. Mm -hmm. I I said Dorothea Dix. I meant out to Umstead where you could run. Right. So y'all y'all go out to Olmstead. Yeah, once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, when when we talked with Dan Middleman, we he was just this was like I said like in the nineties, but he was talking about running at Olmstead when there was barely anyone out there. I mean, of course, oh, yeah. you know, the, it's a very popular park. Of course, the pandemic has helped make it even more popular. But <laughs> yeah. back then, he said like you could barely find people out there. I assumed that you know it, oh, it was yeah. not traffic did like it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Did y'all do any run in like I mean like we're on the roads the neighborhoods or did you try to? Yeah. Yeah, we had several loops. Um, one of them went across Hillsboro, and we had a. Uh, I, I could probably do it. I could. We, had, um, we ran down Dick's Trail, and yep. then out there's a school way out there, and um, came back along part of Crabtree Creek. That was like a seven and a half mile loop. Mm -hmm. And then we had several that went the other way. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been. It's hard to describe where it is now, but there is an area back on the far side of Western Boulevard near 440 and we had this this mile loop where the road goes way up and there's another hill and then another hill and so the first 400 meters kind of near your house yeah it's called Kaplan is it yeah 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 I, I live at the top of that hill okay I think we call them Kaplan miles yes we still there's a workout that the way coach Geiger we call it Kaplan Hill workout 
and there was it, it was it's about a half mile hill, but we would do the loop going up Kaplan and kind of I forget going down Lorimer, and we would do some. Okay. It was it was about a one point one mile loop that if you did with going adding up okay. additional, but it but Kaplan was the hill that you would charge okay. up, and it was an I mean it had three distinct little you know yeah. uh, smaller hills within it. It was it was about a half mile long. So I assume this is the same thing. Yeah, yeah, we're probably running those when. When Raleigh was in high school, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> anyway, but you know, it went back a ways because this this would have been probably in you know beginning in like seventy two. I gotcha. So, what was your introduction to some kind of your star pupils, the 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 Shays? How did you get introduced to them, and what was it like coaching them? Yeah, so I started coaching Julie when she was a uh, sophomore, and. Um, she was a, a pain in the butt because you couldn't slow her down. This is just me talking, but well, no, Mary said the same thing. Yeah, Mary said they were. She was always chasing Julie. <laughs> and 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 in my opinion, she once she had some confidence in what we're doing, it helped her a little bit because finally we had some easy days. She was such a fanatic early that we would do a workout and it was plenty. She'd go over to, um, what's the name of the high school that's now somewhere else? Yeah, Cardinal Gibbons. Yeah. yeah, Cardinal Gibbons, and run another workout. And then she and Mary, so she and Mary would run in the morning, and so I showed up a couple times just to slow them down because it was like a four-mile or a five-mile race. Yeah. You know, you, if you timed them, they probably couldn't, maybe they could have run 20 seconds faster if it had been an actual race. I'm not yeah. sure. So I'd try to slow them down. Then they start racing me, and then I'd get the bug, and we all end up. Anyway, so <laughs> so Julie early on was a real pain, but I think once she got into the program a little bit, because when she ran some somewhat easier days, she could run high quality workouts. And before she ran as a um, sophomore year, Eugene, Oregon, the women's championships. 3,000 prelim, 3,000 final, 5,000 final, 10,000 final, and it wasn't spaced in a whole week. I forget, you know, maybe it was four days or so. She won all of those and set a record at all those distances. Wow. So then, then just off of what we're doing, which is fairly high volume, she went up New York Marathon. Uh, Allison Rowe won. There's a woman named Ingrid Christensen that was second. Julie was two seconds behind her for third place in New York. And then Mary said, I want to run a marathon. So mm-hmm. a couple of years later, she went up to Boston and finished third. And this is just, you know, with, with decent volume of like interval workouts, occasional, and our long runs might have been, say, eight or 10 miles. But it's also exactly what Frank Shorter did in 72. He didn't run long runs. But then again, we were both running more than other people that we knew of in the United States as far as volume. <coughs> um, I should mention that. In, in May of 72, we both put on, we both put in a really big month. Now, Vail, Colorado is 8,300 feet, mm-hmm. so it's not a picnic to begin with, but it's in a valley. So if you're running anywhere but the golf course there, you're running higher elevation, right? We had a, we had a, um, a May where Frank and I ran three times a day, every day, Went to the Drake Relays, didn't even, you know, just ran right through that. And um, our biggest week was 180 miles. 
and we average something like 156 miles for the month wow. per, per week. So, so, how, so just real quick, give me a breakdown of those days in terms of like you, you run. Know, I, I should have brought over the page. I, I've, I've, since I was a, a junior in college, I've written down every workout I've ever done. So wow. I, I should have brought over that, that May thing. Yes. And if you're interested, I can take a picture and just yeah, I'd love, there, yeah, I would and love to see it. To so I mean, what? So it would like so in that given time, just ballpark morning. Five or, like how far were the distances at each each so, interval so, during a given so, three so the run day? Run, so Frank and I didn't run together in the morning. I like to get up early. Frank liked to s sleep in. Um, but remember, all we did was eat and sleep, right, and right. run. So um, I would run nine miles in the morning, and we'd do uh, like a, a four mile loosening, four or five mile loosening up run um, midday. And then in the late afternoon, we'd run either distance pretty quick or interval workout. Totaling, you know, how many miles in the evening? Another 10? Let's see. <laughs> yeah, that would have been about right, given the mileage. Yeah. I mean, it would total 10 in the case of an interval workout. Right, yeah, so you're putting in or, 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 20, 25 a day or, or, you know. over us. Right, is that, that the math? We should we should do the Jack Bachelor Raleigh Half Marathon training plan. Yeah, <laughs> guarantee <laughs> PR if you stay healthy. <laughs> if your well, legs so, don't fall. Yeah, off. so that was the thing. Occasionally, we have guys that would come down to Florida that were pretty decent, and they would jump right into 140 miles a week, feeling just great for four or five days. Yeah, and then, you know, overtraining, injuries, getting colds, or you know, whatever happens so when you overtrain. When you when you and Frank were running those miles, what shoes were you wearing? Or is it still the the um, was the tiger? Probably, yeah. I, was it tigers then, or was it? I so we could get shoes from companies. So I had some some tigers and some Nikes and some Adidas and some Pumas. Matter of fact, I ran the year I won the national cross country championship. I should probably put them on eBay now, but they were Puma shoes that were Velcro fastened and had had little spikes coming out wow. of the, the the plastic plate in the front of them. So we just. We had some go-to shoes that we liked, but um, I can't even, you know, I yeah, I, I can't remember what what they were. Well, Prefontaine, you said Prefontaine's a pair of shoes that were one of the, like the first like Nike waffles that Prefontaine wore, yeah. just sold on eBay for like one hundred sixty thousand. Not on eBay, but I uh, yeah, was it so so the bees? Yeah, 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 and someone mentioned it one of those things that there was a pair of twelve shoes made out of those. Those are probably mine. There we go. My shoe size is fourteen now, but. It was 13 then, and I'd squeeze myself into size 12 shoes. And that they were horrible for me. Yeah. You know, the, the, they were white nylon and had the, the you know, the waffle nub-like things yeah. on them, and I just threw mine out to make my feet hurt. So when you just going back to one of the things, the NC State, when you were the NC State women's cross country champion, the, the team, that was in 19, was it 79? And who was who was on that team? What were the places? It was. Do you remember? Uh, so that's that's the fall where Mary was having some kind of issue. She placed way back in that race, but Julie won. Uh, if, if you can find it, Betty was probably in the top five, but but then it was just depth that did it. Okay. It wasn't really high. We had a Kim Sharp and we had a Valerie Ford back then, and, um, and I think Mary was top five the following year with Julie winning again and Betty like right up there. And I think Valerie Ford might have been the fourth person, and we had we had some women that were had won their state championship that were 
that were way back. You know, that was that, that was kind of. I shouldn't say way back, because if they run for another team, they probably would have been way up. In their, <laughs> yeah, you know, the top runner. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and this is kind of you know I know. Obviously, had you know coached some great teams, and then obviously you were a professor at NC State. Retired in twenty, you know what, fourteen? You said, what? What was you know between kind of ending of coaching and, and let's say up till you know more recent? What has been your relationship with the sport of running? I actually, it's um, I would say after two thousand, it was almost non-existent until about what did I say before? Maybe a year and a half ago. Now the 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 people I I coached, it was both men and women, some Mantini and Brower and them on the men's side. There's fellow Dan Capriolio. But in those little groups, five of them made the Olympic trials in the marathon. So they, some of them weren't slouches, but also had some, some women that were 19, um, 20 minute, uh, you know, 5K weekend warrior like things. What got me a little less interested. Uh, was that rightfully so they had other priorities so I might see one of them had a condominium in Atlantic Beach and um, would they just had other things to do and that was understandable but for me I was looking for people where running was no matter how fast they were you you, you wanted to see them improve you wanted them to not put their life on the line running, but you want them to be sure. really invested in it and so on, and that, that was becoming less frequent. Gotcha. Well, you were obviously an Olympian, Olympian runner, um, national championship coach, but a little internet research will say you're also the pumpkin king. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the, these these 800-pound pumpkins you've grown. Um, 879. <laughs> <laughs> Let well, it be done. So um, it started out as a family competition. And one year, my brother uh, grew a 300-pound pumpkin, which is just amazing if you've never seen a big pumpkin before. So I got into it a little bit, and I wanted to see how big a pumpkin I could grow. So I got on several pumpkin websites and read what the biggest growers would do also quickly found out in the South isn't the best place in the world. We have a lot of disease pressure. You get fungi and bacterial You got the boll weevil problem. Stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, but I found out, I shouldn't say found out. So I, I, I upped my game a little bit. So uh, pumpkins have a main vine. Okay. You try to grow a big pumpkin on the main vine and they're secondaries. On every secondary, I had a raised bed uh, with plastic, trickle irrigation, where I can inject each row with fertilizer and systemic insecticide. It would, you know, it would it would go throughout the plant and kill things. Um, I had a tent over each pumpkin, which, by the way, almost everybody does. And I had a retractable shade cloth over the whole thing, so uh -huh. I had about 60 by 70 feet that grew three three pumpkins. Um, I like to promote IPM, you know, only spray when necessary and scout and do things carefully. And <clears throat> that wasn't the case with pumpkins. I had a backpack sprayer and I sprayed them every three to four days with a combination of insecticides and fungicides. Um, you weren't planning on eating the pumpkins. No, so. yeah. <laughs> no. And you couldn't afford anything to happen. 
Yeah. Um, those three plants with all the infrastructure I had, it probably cost about $4,000 wow. to set everything up. Groundhogs can be a problem. Uh -huh. So I bought four feet high well wire fence. I dug a one foot trench. So one foot of it was underground, three feet were above the ground. I had five strands of, um, of wire fencing for deer. <coughs> um, tried a, um, like a solar panel one year, and I, I could touch the wire and I could feel it pulsing. Mm -hmm. Another time I got something called a three jewel, 15 mile cattle thing to keep horses out, even if weeds would short it out a little mm -hmm. bit. And so I, I plugged that, it, that goes into a 110 line. So I ran a line about 150 feet down to where my pumpkins were. And one thing you can do, you can take a, like a, a long blade of grass and you can touch one of the wires. And if it sparks, you know, you've got yeah. something pretty good. I did that, next thing I knew I was on my butt, about <laughs> three feet away. <laughs> From putting a piece of grass on it? Yeah. Oh yeah. God, okay. Yeah. So I was about to say, this is a great idea if you're ever on the gut. <laughs> Hog farm. So right. and my <laughs> wife was worried about, you know, if a dog came up, it wouldn't be too good. Yeah, my, right. My technician was fooling around with it. Just he put it around his garden. He found a dead groundhog underneath the lowest wire. Oh, boy. And so there was a little bit of danger. But then again, we, we live in an area in Clayton that has pretty big lots. And you don't see, you know, people walking on each other's backyards. Um, so that was fun. Um, but... You had to do all the things that I did, in some cases more, um, to, in this case, win the... It's a, pretty, it's a pretty big deal to state fair. You know, totally. You've seen yeah. these big pumpkins, maybe. So it's one of the most viewed things, I understand, the state fair. Maybe a million visitors, counting yeah. people that might look at it twice. Well, it's the perfect timing in you know, mid-October. Yeah. You know, the only downside is it's hard to keep a pumpkin viable and healthy that long because rot's set in and... You, you do have issues and so on, but it was fun when we had that one year. And so, so tell me, how'd you get from your backyard to the state fair? I wish I brought my phone in. Uh, <laughs> a front end loader with straps around the pumpkin that would bring it up and put it. When once you get up in the air, you can back a truck underneath. You have a pallet in the bed of your truck. You put it on that, and then you strap it in and so on. And, and it's your responsibility to get it there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the state fair, of course, they've got fork front end loader things, they can just go right into the pallet and uh -huh. lift it where they need to. Yeah. Um, Do you have an entry this year? Oh no, I haven't done that. So <laughs> for me, being kind of old and arthritic, by 2015, um, growing a competitive pumpkin meant five days a week, I mean uh, three hours a day, five days a week for five months without going anywhere, oh, working wow. in the pumpkins uh, twice a day. So it was a, it was kind of a labor of love. Um, these days, so my biggest pumpkin was 897. The state record now in North Carolina is approaching 1,600 pounds. Oh, gosh. And steroids. Yeah, yeah. The, the, <laughs> state, uh, the state record holder, um, Danny Vester from Spring Hope, um, has made his own greenhouses now. Uh, so with that, you control temperature, humidity. It's a wrap. He's it's even, hard to beat. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's even hooked up a big... Uh, uh, a big, you've seen swamp AC things, you blow a fan through water trickling through these baffles and you can cool the place down. And so that, that's that's how it's evolved. Pumpkins yeah. has always been an open thing, so you can do whatever you want. And yeah. You hear these jokes about people injecting milk and stuff <laughs> in vines and God. that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got one final question, Jack. Just, I would love to, you know, again, just appreciate your time today. 
from my end, talk to us on, I know everyone would love to hear, I know you said you've been following more recently the sport. Yeah. We'll, we'll just talk about, and from your vantage point, again, you've been around it for decades now, uh, what you think the state of our, the sport is, uh, the sport of running here nationally, or even locally for that matter. Well, to, to me now, it kind of zeroes in the NC State's women's distance runners and cross-country team, right? Yeah, yeah. I hope, I hope the recent track and field news thing where they made predictions about the possible women's winner and the team, and huge picture of Tui on yeah. there, and a picture of the team, and remember these old Sports Illustrated things they used to call the kiss of death because sometimes they'd feature <laughs> right. a cover, and that individual, often it didn't go very well, but boy, they sure seemed deep. They sure got some strong girls up front, say through at least four, maybe beyond that. And so that's that's been kind of that's that's been fun to follow a little bit, and kind of at least with me, kind of reinvigorating things a little bit. Um, so it'd be it'd be interesting, I think, to take the women's second team um, with Julie and Mary and Betty and so on, add up those points Whew. and see how the women do against that. Yeah. Um, they may do very well. Yeah. It seems like they're pretty strong. Storied program for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been fun to to get reacquainted with. And then um, it's been fun to want to follow the like the world championships, the Diamond League meets and, yeah. and stuff like that. And um, any runners you enjoy following in particular? Well Ambritson's sure yeah. fun to yeah, watch. Yeah, there's right? no doubt. Yeah, they a little brash, but you know you gotta love it. It's part of the brand. Oh yeah, shout <laughs> out Jingy. Yeah, maybe it's a Norway thing. It looks to me like he's put his own tat. He's designed and put on his own tattoos. He does have some bad looking. I know. Well, it's like well, his leg looks like it, it looks like he's taken a marker and just like <laughs> randomly put. But it, these are small tattoos. You seen his leg oh, yeah, all up and yeah. down of his, you know, his thigh into his shin. Yeah, it's almost like he's in the Marines and you know, some Marines that you, you see they they must have self-administered tattoos. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> maybe, uh, maybe in a bar on a bet or something. But I, no, I, I, maybe in Norway, and to him, I'm sure it's all meaningful and probably pretty classy, but looking at it from the outside, it's kind of a, a strange thing to behold. All right, my, actually, last last question on the running front. You know, what it might be controversial, but just any thoughts on just the state of running in terms of kind of the performance enhancing from the shoe perspective, which we've seen a lot of oh, technology, oh. or even just the perfor PEDs? performance enhancing drugs. Any any thoughts on those I, two? Yeah, I just don't know. I just hope and Frank Shore would say the same thing. I just hope the testing is random and it's final and it's like well carried out. Yeah. And it's unbiased and so on. But I guess I still get involved in the mates of Sydney McLaughlin is ready to is Sydney is it Sydney McLaughlin? Anyway, yeah. watching the four hundred IM you still get really involved in that and I think I I think she's clean. I think most people are clean, but you know. But when it comes to, uh, say, a pork burrito, you do kind of wonder if. It <laughs> 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 yeah, so, so, so I'm hoping the people that do violate these things, in most cases, are are caught. Are getting um, caught, yeah. I, I know Kevin Brower, for example, is very skeptical about drug use, and for him, it kind of taints taints everything. He, Watches totally. If if I understand them correctly, and there are people like that, but I still get involved in the meets, and you know, and, and these performances are amazing. But, yeah, and we got to get you out to Sir Walter next year. That's what I was gonna yeah. say. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 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 Frank, like Frank did at the 
that the world's fire the starting gun or something. Totally, totally. Yeah. Well, Jack, again, I'll just end with saying thanks so much for hopping on. It is this is a real treat to to get you in here at the run quarters to get you on uh, to see you again, and just thanks all you've done for the sport, what you've done locally, and uh, definitely hope to see you around. And as Pat just mentioned, um, August fourth of twenty twenty three at Cardinal Gibbons High School, hopefully, is where Sir Walter Bob will be for a tenth oh. edition, and I will follow up to make sure that you're there. Okay. So go okay. ahead and mark that in your calendar. Yeah. First Friday in August. Is it? Let me ask. Is it slightly downhill? What's well, on the track? We have oh. the downhill mile the next day. Oh, oh I see. Yeah, we I do see. have a downhill mile, but no, this is this is a track meet. So oh. uh, at Cardinal Gibbons, that's what you can see. You had a couple sub fours already in that meet. We've right? had a ton of sub fours over yeah, our okay. nine years. We've we've had, had sixty nine sub fours. Yeah, sixty nine, oh and then we've God. had a ton of sub four thirty. Oh, such a huge. It is. That's why we got to get you out there next year. Oh, come so to the dinner. Come yeah, to the whole thing. yeah. We'll invite you the whole. It's kind bring, of a, bring kind of a week, or a couple events around a few days. Love to have it. Love to have you out, especially oh, since you're neat. local. Bring John Parker. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Frank Shorter. Just bring <laughs> that. Get the boys. Get the, get the, yeah, that's right. Florida. <laughs> here's the, do you have any Florida Track Club uh, like uh, gear or, or, or? I have uh, everything. You have everything. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, I want you to take a picture and send. I would love just to see her. I want to. I want to feel it. We need to set up a little small yeah, so museum. I have, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, again, I call it a wife beater T-shirt like thing with. Uh, with letters, and then the second iteration was blue nylon with with orange letters, and then finally we got the orange thing. And then we mostly ran into a second iteration of the orange thing. So, yeah, I, I I just found those. I had no idea. I thought I'd lost them all. And my wife had been taking stuff over time and putting it in the attic and so on. I just found it like earlier this week. Well, at least she kept it because there's definitely some value yeah. to. So, that. have you ever read or heard of Ricky Quintana? at Florida. Um, he did the track and field news right up on the women's um, victory, which was at Florida State, you know, pretty close to him. Yeah. But um, he's a, there's a huge Frank Short, there's a huge um, Florida Track Club anniversary coming up during Martin Luther King weekend and also celebrates Frank's 50th win. And he's, he's probably had about 10 of those yeah, right now yeah. with different like sponsoring groups. I heard him talking about that on uh, the Let's Run podcast recently. So, yeah, so there's this this, this thing in Gainesville. So we're trying to find all this memorabilia, and I was glad just to find the original Florida Track Club jerseys, as well as the initial orange thing, as well as my drawing of the orange that I I have on on this white stiff piece of paper. Yeah. So we're trying to bring all, all of that kind of stuff. And I think they're... Ricky's trying to get as many people as possible to, to come down there. That's Love awesome. It. Love it. This thing. Well, thanks again, Jack yeah, Bachelor, for coming to Runquarters. Yes, really, really have looked forward to this for a while and uh, look forward to letting everybody else hear it. And, uh, man, there we go. There we go. Yeah, that's it. There we go. Thanks, okay. Jack. Thanks yeah, again. Thank you. You must be daddy's little punk, and I can tell by the way you roll. You must be daddy's little pumpkin, I can tell by the way you roll. Well, it's quarter past eleven and you're sleeping on the bedroom floor. I can see the fire burning, burning right behind your eyes.